Listener Production. Welcome back to The Great COVID Reset. I'm your host, Adam Shand. The aim of this series is to follow the response to COVID-19 and to understand how much will change, how much will stay the same and how Australia might fare beyond the crisis. It's 12 months since our first episode. What's striking is how the dire predictions of 2020 have not come to pass. The global death toll to date of 3.1 million people is a fraction of the 50 million who died in the Spanish flu outbreak of 1919-20. Up to 15 million Australians were expected to catch the virus and 150,000 of us might have died by now. The death toll stands at less than 1,000 at the time of writing. This is not to say the threat was overstated, but in countries like Australia, where science trumped politics, the worst-case scenario was averted. There was no global depression, as was forecast by so many economists. Battling COVID-19 did not bankrupt our economies, and our children will not be burdened with debt for decades. In fact, the very opposite is true. The global recovery is outstripping all forecasts. We were told to expect a mental health crisis. Suicide rates were tipped to soar as Australians failed to cope with the pandemic. This didn't happen either. We were much more resilient than we could have imagined. Yet, in April and May 2021, as we lined up to receive the COVID-19 vaccines and return to the cherished norms that we gave up in 2020, another surge of infection occurred in India that undermined that sense of confidence and plunged the world back into uncertainty. Well, as you know, the surge, which has really come into effect in the last month, has been terrible. Dr. Kumud Dital is a world-leading heart and lung surgeon. He was formerly the lead surgeon in heart-lung transplants at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. He now runs a private specialist clinic based in Hyderabad, India, which has been transformed into a COVID-intensive care unit. The scale of the tragedy unfolding was overwhelming. I mean, if you can think of doomsday and apocalypse, this is pretty much it. In the sense that just over three days, you're getting a million cases. And now, what does all this mean is that we really can't let our guard up at all. And that the likelihood is that this is related to the more recent variant in India, the so-called double mutant. I mean, there are lots of double mutants about. All it is is that it's got two very important mutations in, uh, hence the double mutant terminology. But it seems to be more responsible now. Uh, if you were to look at it about just over a month ago, I think over 50% were due to the UK variant, with some Brazilian and South African variants also have been detected in India. In early May 2021, the Indian tragedy seemed distant and disconnected from our situation, just as the first outbreak in Wuhan, China, in late 2019 had been. Dr Dital warned that complacency was a dangerous folly with the double mutant strain. And if this spreads elsewhere, which is likely to do, then I think people should be really prepared and think twice about a lot of the relaxation, particularly the relaxation around personal responsibility, because here a lot of this has been done to not just the arrival of the double mutant, but the complacency, I think, that is inevitable in a society that has gone through a huge phase of various lockdowns and so on, and 
have let their guard down. And this is following similar to what happened in Brazil. So the situation now is that the hospitals are full. There's a shortage of oxygen supply, of medications, of resources. You know, I run a heart and lung transplant unit, which is probably the safest intensive care unit you can think of, which is now I've turned into a COVID ECMO intensive care unit. The air rescue services are getting hundreds of calls a day to try and get them to specialist centers like ours. And these are only the people who can afford this. So it's becoming very much in terms of what you can get is how much you can pay for these things, even oxygen, even medication. And you've seen, I don't need to describe, you will have seen images, pictures, descriptions of big metropolitan city like Delhi suffering so badly with funeral pyres having to be built in open public spaces and parks, crematoriums unable to cope. And sadly, we've only heard of a couple, but there must be many more where hospitals are running out of oxygen, intensive care patients dying. Some of the commentary has been that possibly the cases are being underreported and the deaths being underreported. What's the situation there, do you think? Well, listen, that is likely, I suppose. I mean, um, I don't think that's true of all states in India. I think some are more vigilant than others. And I think just looking cursorily at the rates of infection and the deaths across the different states shows such a discrepancy that there must be some underreporting, there must be some under-testing. And this is just the availability of resources at the ground level, particularly in rural communities. This is inevitable. And part of that is also due to the ability to collect the data in real time, which is going to be very difficult in a country this size. But I think this complacency, I think this feeling that the COVID business is over has led to obviously the guard down in many states in India where provisions for such a calamity probably weren't anticipated. And so if you go to states like Kerala, for example, they seem to be very well equipped for oxygen. They surged up their capacity and so on in advance of something like this happening. Elsewhere, the guard was down. Many Australians do believe that the pandemic is over, that COVID was a disease that killed only the old and those with an underlying health condition. Now that over a million Australians have been vaccinated, we believe we're shielded from the deadly virus. This notion may not hold true in the months to come. I just want to portray uh, something else, which is that this is unlike anything we've seen in that first surge. This is affecting a younger population. It's affecting them early. They're getting very sick and requiring ICU within days as opposed to weeks. It is escaping both natural immunity and vaccine-induced immunity. So there are cases now of people who have had previous COVID and have recovered and now have been reinfected. That we've seen in a sort of smattering of cases elsewhere. But what we're now seeing is not just the fact that you've recovered from COVID, but that you've had both doses of a vaccine and even 30 days after your vaccine, you're still getting this in a terrible situation and still in ICU and some are dying young. Indian hospitals are being overwhelmed with the sick and dying. I've got a huge board out here with patients who need interstate transfer to a higher level care. And the following morning, you know, some of them have not made it over the night. Some are dying before the transfer can occur. Others in transit, others are coming very sick. And some were getting through with better care with this ECMO facility, which is like an artificial external lung support, if you will, um, and that's helping some patients. I don't think we've arrived at the peak. Many of my intensive care doctors, colleagues uh, tell me this is the beginning. I think we're going to be have to be prepared to have all, all the beds in these hospitals are going to really be full with COVID cases 
Now, in India, of course, really the frontline workers are having a terrible time because the number of deaths amongst physicians has been fairly significant. I think this is true in many places, but here it really does make an impact. The numbers look phenomenally large when you think about it. Ultimately, we have to try and calm this down and look at it more dispassionately in terms of the national demographics where it starts to make a bit more sense. But the numbers, when it hits you first, just seems just a tragic, tragic event occurring. I don't see the end of it right away. I think this is going to be around for a while. I think we're just seeing the beginning um, of, of this. And I, I just want to pass on for everybody out there to be extra vigilant, not to relax. And if they have detected this, the Brazilian, the South African variants, then to be absolutely extra caution in the tracking, in the isolating that's going on. Because this comes at a time when a lot of countries around the world are now distributing vaccines and there's a sense of the war is over, but clearly it's not. And also it calls into question this mentality that the vaccine is the silver bullet, the shield that will deliver us back to norm normalcy. What's your view on that? Okay, two things. One is that it's definitely not over. I've just had reports out of Africa and certain countries that the situation is absolutely tragic, particularly in countries where the health infrastructure for you know political government reasons have collapsed. And so it is a complete mess. And so it's hard to even understand the data from those countries. Vaccines, of course, are necessary. Vaccines, just like the flu vaccine, is a necessary to be taken prophylactically to try and preempt you getting the disease. But we know that every flu season, the sort of viruses that are coming on board or the mutations of those change every year. And that's why the vaccines are reconfigured every year in the hope that you hopefully will get the right vaccine for what may be coming. Now, there's a difference between what everybody talks about efficacy rate, really high efficacy rates amongst vaccines and so on, and the effectiveness. The efficacy rates are only applicable to trials, clinical trials, and not to populations. And you have to think about the effectiveness rate. And when you look at that, actually, the vaccines really are not much better than your average flu vaccine, which is somewhere around 50% or thereabouts. And so the idea that you're somehow immune just because you've got it is nonsense. Yes, it may prevent you from progressing on to more serious disease. It may limit you from having to go to hospital or perhaps from hospital to ICU within the hospital. But it is not the panacea. It is necessary because it's applicable to an entire population. But we're going to see this coronavirus coming back every year in different forms and having to be repeat vaccinated. The problem is that that alone is not going to get society back to normal. Dr Detal says the world needs not only an effective vaccine to return to normal, but also effective antiviral therapies to treat and cure COVID. But this is hardly being addressed in the rush to vaccinate. What we do need is also effective treatment as in antiviral therapy. And that, sadly, has only been really in the media and national regulatory authorities and the governments have only been speaking about it in the last quarter, you know, at best. And so now everybody's after trying to develop antiviral therapy, which is the only thing that's really going to be really valuable in the middle of a pandemic to get frontline workers safe and people traveling, going everywhere because it treats the virus. Dr Detal is part of an Australian team, Covarex Medical, which is developing antiviral and anti-inflammatory drugs by repurposing existing drugs for COVID. In the lab, their drugs have killed COVID, but that was the early strain which began in Wuhan, China. Developing an effective drug is a moving target, with the virus mutating and changing 
as with the strain ravaging India. But the reality on the ground tells us that some of these variants are able to escape both natural immunity from having previously acquired the disease and also post-vaccination and therefore vaccination-induced immunity is escaping both and patients are getting reinfected in a far more accelerated and serious condition that we had ever envisaged before. So how many months are we away from your product being available or any product for that matter that can be pitched into this fight? Oh, listen, without sort of, this is where the governments come in because without their help in trying to speed up sort of regulatory processes and so on, I suspect we're looking towards the end of the year. The scale of the Indian tragedy continues to unfold. After our interview, Dr. Dital rushed off in a private jet to bring a VIP to his clinic from interstate. The patient fell ill three days after having his second vaccination jab. That patient is close to death. In a country where poverty is the norm, the future looks truly catastrophic. There's a strange sense of unreality prevailing in Australia as our borders remain closed to most international arrivals. Our case numbers are at very low levels. Where once governments aimed to suppress the virus, now the talk is of elimination. But how realistic that is remains to be seen if the Indian contagion spreads. For the moment, our economy, isolated from the rest of the world, is recovering strongly. Richard Lee and Dr Simon Tucker are working with Dr Kumud Detal on antivirals and anti-inflammatory drugs for COVID. Welcome back to The Great COVID Reset, Richard Lee and Simon Tucker. Now, I'm feeling giddy with optimism as a layperson, seeing the advent of vaccines, our economy storming back. Uh, the shortest depression recession I've ever seen. If you can show me a shorter one, I'll agree. But uh, everything seems to be headed in a direction that was unexpected a few months ago. So, I mean, I've got you in here, Richard, in particular, to give me a dose of pessimism. You, <laughs> you call it reality. Where is the world at, in your opinion? I think the world is actually on a knife edge, actually, I have to say, because there's too much optimism after all the pessimism because of the eagerness to reopen the economy and there's been a significant collision of monetary policy as well as fiscal policy, all stimulatory. And uh, you have that perfect storm whereby, you know, asset prices are highly inflated. In fact, even yesterday, the China banking regulator forewarned that as a bubble is, is building up, we need to do something about that. And that's what caused the Asian market to go down sharply as well. So I think, you know, he did it in order to so-called regulate uh, the extreme optimism. I have watched a number of um, financial advisors also saying similar things that we're now at the point of an extreme asset bubble. Uh, be careful. So during the bubble uh, time, everything looks good. Well, if I'm a homeowner, I'm seeing my house price storm back. A few months ago, I was told you'll never be able to sell this and the, the bubble would have burst. I'm seeing interest rates that are low and staying low. I mean, where's the problem in all this? I mean, do we have a situation where, as Roosevelt said, we have only fear itself to fear? Are we in that kind of mentality, do you think? I think we have to uh, look at the asset uh, inflation versus the real economy. I mean, for instance, in America, 
They still have at least 10, maybe even 20 million unemployed. That's not healthy. So the underlying economy is not healthy. By throwing a lot of money to the unemployed, they're actually getting the handouts without the so-called productive uh, production. That is quite dangerous, actually, because all it does is to feed onto demand and feed higher prices. But, you know, the U.S. Federal Reserve and most governments, their hands are tied because what do you do? You know, there's a pandemic on the one hand. You need to address the problem. It's not over yet. But the fear of opening up and then you're going to get another surge is actually you know, stopping governments from so-called freely opening up. Um, having said that, the Texas governor just declared that, you know, we want to go back to business 100%, open up everything, right? Yeah. So that is the, the dilemma. On the one hand, there's the urge to open up. On the other hand, there's a fear of a second surge. And then, you know, into that mix, the uh, governments have to feel compelled that they have to reflate. They have to throw a lot of money, so-called throwing in the kitchen sink in order to save the economy. So it is in that mix that is actually a very unhealthy kind of mix. Jeez, I, know, I was feeling good for a moment there, Richard. <laughs> but your pessimism seems to be undimmed about all this. And I guess this goes back to our discussion of last time. I'll bring Simon in here because... Everything is predicated on the vaccine. Getting a jab, everything is going to be back to normal. We'll get our pharmaceutical shield and we'll go on with life. But you're working in the antiviral, anti-inflammatory space. People aren't talking about that now. Why not, Simon? Well, let's not downplay the, the work that was done with the vaccines. That was great. It's fantastic work. And those countries that are ahead of the curve in their vaccination uh, are seeing reductions in mortality and hospitalizations, as you'd expect. But it's not 100% effective, and no vaccine really is. There is always a role for other medicines, other interventions. What's going to happen to you if you're in, in that small percentage of people that isn't protected? For some reason, people seem to think the vaccine is going to drive the virus to go away. I, I'm encountering that attitude. That's complete nonsense. That's what I think. That's complete nonsense. <laughs> We're going to be living with this virus. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we look at H1N1, the swine flu, that was our seasonal flu last year. Are we likely to have something like this in the future, that COVID will be just like, oh, God, I got COVID, I'll be away from work for a couple of days? Or is it going to be more serious? My personal opinion, uh, I think it's going to become one of the background illnesses that we get every season, and it will be transmitted very much like influenza or something like this. Mm. The thing that people aren't talking about, Richard, and you are a lot, and you helped my friend recently, who is very, very grateful to you, Isabella, she has long covid and that's something people aren't talking about. What's that likely to look like in your opinion? Well, there's been studies done in Hong Kong, in Wuhan, uh, in the UK even, and the US, that somewhere between 30 to 80% of those who have supposedly recovered from COVID are now having the so-called long COVID or long-haul COVID conditions, meaning that they're having uh, damages to the various organs, including even cognitive uh, you know, issues as well, such as what your friend is uh, has been getting. Yeah, because she has um, MS-like symptoms, multiple sclerosis, where she has vascular problems. She, she sometimes can't walk. Her legs are going all different colours. She has chronic fatigue. And this person's in her early 30s. This is not an elderly person with all the comorbidities. She's a young, fit strong person. And uh, it really scares her. And I guess a lot of people are in that boat. And when in the optimism, maybe we're not seeing that collateral issue. I think a lot of the 
problems that have given rise to long COVID is also the way we care for people once they are infected or tested positive. If you have mild symptoms or asymptomatic, in order not to burden the hospital system, uh, the medical would say go home and self-isolate and they don't get medication. So instead of having early intervention and given earlier medication, they are told that you can heal yourself. And I think that's probably what's contributed to long COVID. What do you think, Simon? Yeah, I think that could have a major impact. Remember that the interventions that we've got at the moment are largely hospital-based. So remdesivir, for instance, is intravenous. You're not going to be able to self-administer that at home. So if you're sent at home, what are you, what are you given? Aspirin? Paracetamol? I don't, you know, there's not much option for you. Yeah. So you guys have been working on 18 compounds that were previously under patent. They're Italian patents. We talked about in the last episode. You were going through testing of that. You had some very encouraging laboratory results in the test tube, as it were. Where are those products at now? So we're still in discovery stage, in essence. So the next challenge really is to formulate for um, inhaled delivery. Uh, which is underway. And one of the key issues is getting these drugs tested. And we've had the vaccine industry go at warp speed. And we talked about the opportunity for Australia with drugs like yours, where we had this long-term issue, not just a vaccine one shot, but a seasonal issue. And also people, I guess right now still in the pandemic, needing the kind of drugs that you're going to produce How's that going in terms of getting things to market? Are we seeing the same sort of speed in Australia that the opportunity suggests we should? It's a very interesting problem that um, it seems to be a problem worldwide in access to testing facilities. And this is probably because of the great deal of interest. Um, but there's also some practical difficulties, like, for instance, some of the uh, US facilities are running out of reagents. I would never have expected to see that. And that tells you how much testing and, and other work is going on. But what that means is a long backlog of time to get materials tested. And so but I would have thought, and we talked about this, the opportunity for Australian farmer, if you like, to jump on this product. We dodged a bullet, you could say, with the pandemic and his opportunity to, to actually now benefit from that. But you're striking difficulties. Tell us about that. I think uh, I think a lot of people are striking difficulties. So um, from a practical perspective, uh, the virus has to be, you have to work at a high containment. So that means right away you've limited the number of labs that can work with it. You also need to be trained properly. So right away you've limited the number of people that can do the work. That's not going to go away, I'm afraid. That's going to remain an issue. And that does mean that there's a limited number of facilities in the world that can do the work and a lot of work to be done. So, yes, I agree, there's a great opportunity, but there's also a lot of work underway. But we have those facilities here, but can you get access at a, at a reasonable rate? We have accessed some of those facilities. Um, the cost is high, but you know the work is expensive to undertake as well. So um, you know, I'm not going to comment on specifics there. But getting routine access in meaningful timeframes is a challenge. So you're better off going overseas at the moment. We've actually had better luck overseas. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a, a missed opportunity. I mean, I think this is something we talked about in relation to the stimulatory economics going on from the government, that they should be funding science, funding R&D. We spoke about this last time. And here we have a backlog developing where we can't get drugs tested in a timely fashion in Australia. Is it time we walk the walk and not just talk the talk on this stuff? As with everything, I think additional funding would help. 
There's no doubt about that. If there were more people trained, if there were more scientists that could do the work, and if there were more facilities, clearly there would be more work undertaken. <laughs> because what would a successful drug like yours mean to the Australian economy in this sector? There's a number of different ways of measuring that. I mean, you can measure that from a financial perspective. It's a product that would be sold. You can measure that from a medical perspective in that it would enable doctors to treat patients that are otherwise not treated. And obviously, from an individual's perspective, it would assist them recover. You know, so, so there's a lot of benefits. You know, we don't envisage that this product is simply for Australia. We envisage this would be a global product. You worked on the original flu antiviral. And how much value is that one created in terms of jobs and market value and so forth? That one actually is an interesting story. That was eventually dropped from the market. It wasn't really accepted widely in Australia. There's Relenza. Yeah. Yes, Relenza. It was, um, it was approved in, in Australia for use. wasn't widely prescribed and um, eventually was removed from the market. But it did make sales overseas. It did provide Biota, which was the originator, with a, um, a long-term income from uh, royalties, which obviously did help employ people, grow the sector, etc. Because I remember working on a little publication called Pharmacy Trade, and this was back in the early, uh, mid-80s, 86, and it was just, the talk was just around then and saying, oh, you've got to buy this share, it's going to be on the market and so forth. So huge, huge deal, but it just shows how fragile these projects are and how much care and even government support they need. That's very true, actually. Very true. This is not an easy sector to work in, but the rewards medically and, and financially can be quite significant. So um, so it's definitely work that's worth doing. Yeah. So in this situation where we're trying to get back to normal, a drug like yours would actually allow us to soldier on like we do with the flu and, and colds now. You know, you, you ask about what the economic benefits of an antiviral, but we should also look at the cost to date of the pandemic and how that cost could well be eliminated. I mean, this financial year, the cost to the Australian economy is over $200 billion, right? So ultimately, if I, if I say to you, Adam, that, okay, ultimately we will deliver a cure that can kill the virus, wouldn't you want that? Hell yeah. Right? When? When can I have it? Well, we have to work through the normal process. This is the problem. Exactly. But we're dealing with drugs, we're dealing with human lives, so the pharmaceutical industry has got to take the extra care to make sure that it is safe, that it is efficacious. Uh, so all these things have to be done, okay? But at the end of the day, if I say to you that we will be able to deliver a cure, uh, then that is the light at the end of the tunnel to reopen the economy. And yet no one's talking about it. Well, so far, there's only been one so-called officially approved antiviral, and that is remdesivir. And yet the WHO came out with the report last November that it doesn't work. Uh, it's not me saying that, the WHO saying that. Despite that, remdesivir, which is sold by Gilead Sciences, they've actually done $1.9 billion of sales in the December quarter. Okay, So because of the negative report from the WHO, Right now, I don't think, Simon, there's any other antiviral that's been so-called officially approved. No, there's no, no other antiviral in that class, that's right. So there is that window. If we are able to deliver 
our antiviral, it could well become the first one. So tell us, what would you exactly need today to hit a deadline that would be commercial and what we need now for the population to really open up? We need the governments of the world, and in particular because we're, we're here in Australia, we need the Australian government, both federal and state government, to start emphasising the importance of antiviral, providing funding, support, providing testing capacity so that we can actually move ahead on on this uh, rather than having to take it offshore. What's wrong with this? Why aren't we doing this? Well, I, I think, you know, somehow the governments strongly believe in prevention is better than cure. But the problem is that prevention is better than cure before the disease arrives, right? But the disease is here already in our backyard. So we, you know, no more than just harping on prevention better than cure. We need to find that cure. <laughs> Thanks for your time, guys. Thank you. Thank you. In the next episode, I'll talk to Dr. Keith Souter from Listener's Global Truths podcast to see how Australia's economic future looks beyond the pandemic, if indeed it's really over, which is far from certain. The Great COVID Reset is written and produced by Adam Shand. Mixing, editing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Shan. Listener.